This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. It's Monday, May 2nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why it's time for you to waste time. Plus, a cafe in Tokyo that doesn't let people leave until they've successfully hit their writing goals. And a possibly sustainable use for the ungodly amounts of disposable face masks that we've thrown out in the last two years. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Some people work best in the total silence of a library or their own home. Others need the drone of background noise from a public place. And yet others need a stranger constantly hovering over them, forcing them to stay in that public place until they finish their work. Wait, what? That is one option available at the Manuscript Writing Cafe in Tokyo, a place designed for writers to achieve their writing goals or else they can't leave. The cafe reserves one section for writers who can pay by the hour for unlimited self-serve coffee and tea, as well as Wi-Fi and device charging ports. When they arrive, they sign in with their name and writing goal for the day, as well as a time they'd ideally like to finish by. Then they pick a level. Mild just means someone will ask if they've completed their goal before they pay and depart the cafe. Normal means someone will check in on them every hour. And hard means that staff will repeatedly stand behind them to ensure that they're working. Now, while that last one in particular sounds a bit offbeat, the cafe has found a lot of success in Tokyo so far and has really been taking off online. Takuya Kawai, a writer who founded and owns the cafe, told Reuters, quote, The cafe went viral on social media and people are saying the rules are scary or that it feels like being watched from behind. But actually, instead of monitoring, I'm here to support them. As a result, what they thought would take a day actually was completed in three hours or tasks that usually take three hours were done in one, end quote. And I suppose it makes sense that the owner of this so-called anti-procrastination cafe would be a writer himself. The reactions online seem to be pretty divided between people saying this looks like something they wish they had in their area and others saying it looks like their worst nightmare. But it also seems like a lot of people who are writers or other types of independent workers, by trade, not necessarily by preference, are intrigued and would welcome the company and added structure, whereas folks used to working more closely in teams are pretty repelled by the idea. Personally, I like working at cafes and in co-working spaces, but I also think I would be mortified to have to share my goals with a barista and face social shame if I didn't achieve them, but I guess that is kind of the whole point. Well, in stiff contrast to that last segment, let's talk about intentionally wasting time, or at least trying not to worry about wasting time. Metro News yesterday published an excerpt from Madeline Doerr's latest book, I Didn't Do the Thing Today, Letting Go of Productivity Guilt, and it really spoke to some thoughts that I've been having lately, which you may share as well, seeing as you too live in this world of nonstop busyness where we at the altar of productivity. 
Now, I am a very reluctant yet zealous devotee to that temple of time management. Being a freelancer, and particularly one who at the moment has committed to releasing a podcast by 5 p.m. Eastern every weekday, my life is necessarily divided up into meticulously color-coded time blocks in my Google Calendar. Peppered with reminder alerts and sticky notes, I ride the high tides of ticking every checkbox for the day in Todoist and wallow gasping in the low tide of apology emails for yet another deadline missed, social event turned down. I feel the prickles of guilt at the back of my neck any time I take too long to read an article not directly related to my work, scroll social media just beyond the point of excusable justification, or agree to any commitment that isn't somehow categorizable into my existing goals and priorities. And yet... Particularly as someone whose work is largely dependent on making things up and turning those imaginations into consumable products, I know that I can't function as a machine. I know that I need to leave room for my mind to wander, for accidental discoveries to occur, for life to be lived beyond screens and deadlines. And so lately, I've been trying to be more okay with wasting time. I kind of feel like I need to schedule in time to waste time, though, which I literally do by engaging in a 24-hour tech Sabbath with strict no-productivity rules once a month, but that feels a little contrary to the concept. It's like I have to work harder and sometimes longer in order to be able to waste time when it comes up. Otherwise, I still feel that guilt over it. And the guilt is a big thing that Dor addresses in this excerpt from her book, writing, quote, When we worry about wasting time, we end up wasting our time worrying. While time management techniques might offer us a semblance of control, they often overlook the fact that we aren't vacuums designed to suction every discretionary minute in our day. We are human beings with varying rhythms, living in fragmented days. Perhaps we need to shift away from trying to maximize our time and instead try to reduce our worry about wasting it. After all, isn't the surest way of squandering time to worry about wasting it? End quote. To that end, Dor brings up one point I am particularly fond of, which is that most people probably undersell how much time they actually waste because they feel guilty about it. And that makes sense, but that also means that we each privately, as individuals, feel even more guilty about how much time we're wasting because everyone else appears to be so much more productive. It's like what we're always trying to remind ourselves about social media, especially on platforms like Instagram. We're seeing everyone else's highlight reels, not their day-to-day realities. And we tend to compare their highlight reels to some of our lowest or most banal moments. That's not a fair comparison. And neither is trying to compare the reality of your amount of wasted time to someone else's potentially undercounted self-report. Even though it may be counterproductive to the ethos of wasting time, one way that I've tried to feel less guilty over time wasted is by considering wasting time to be, well, productive. If wasting time can yield more creative ideas, provide some much-needed rest, or clear my mind, well, then it was time well spent. Of course, it can be tough to justify 45 minutes lost down a YouTube rabbit hole when you have a project due later that day, even if the rabbit hole did lead you to a veritable wonderland of new ideas. And I suppose that's where, paradoxically, we may have to work a little harder, or at least a little smarter, in order to have the time to waste time. 
And that's where hustle culture's productivity hacks might actually become helpful. I mean, after all, deadlines and commitments are real things. And until a seismic shift in work culture occurs, we're all tied to them in one way or another. But Dor points out how odd it is that so many of those productivity hacks seem to suggest that once you've figured out how to do your work as efficiently as possible, the time you've saved should be filled up with more work, not leisure. So for her own spin on productivity hacks, Dor recommends prioritizing tasks in which you've committed to something for someone else, like where you not finishing on time would hold someone else up, as well as putting a limit on how many emails you respond to in a day, or perhaps other time-blocking restrictions to reduce those so-dubbed time-confetti tasks that so many of us fall prey to these days, like only opening your email during set times twice a day. Or just acknowledging that, yes, there is always more work to be done, but sometimes you've done enough for today. But instead of using those tips to make room for more work, use them to make room for more rest. Perhaps the real paradigm shift here is not so much wasting time whenever, but striving to be a more efficient worker so that you can also be a bigger time waster. And if you do enough of it, you might just become a better worker, or at least a happier human in the process. Because that's part of it too. This shouldn't all be framed in the context of work or creativity. It's also just about acknowledging our humanity, that we are flesh and blood beings that need rest on occasion, that there is more to life out there than tasks that pay the bills. Quoting again from Dor. We don't have to view every moment we don't spend the way we expected to as a waste. We can simply appreciate the part it played in our life. In a society that emphasizes the productive use of time, we can easily forget that time we enjoyed wasting is not wasted time. And what a pity it is that we don't even start something because we fear it will be a waste of time. For example, we never begin writing our novel because we worry it'll never get published, or we don't start learning a language because we expect we'll never visit the country where it's spoken. What if it's a waste of time? This may explain why it can be easier to disappear into busy schedules. Surely, wasting the day on things that fill the time is more acceptable than wasting the day on something that might lead nowhere. Often, our encounters with empty time can fling us into boredom, panic, or anxiety, or add to our wasted time worry. But we need some hours in the day to waste as we wish, just like the negative space in design cushions the text to make it more readable. We need cushioning in our days, too. End quote. I love that idea of the design cushions, something that does have to be planned out, because at least for now, as we adapt from our constantly plugged in and overworked realities, it's most likely necessary to design our days to have time to waste time. I've been telling myself a lot lately that I need to waste more time, and in my head, I've been reframing it in a kind of dumpster diving sort of way, that idea that one man's trash is another man's treasure, one person's wasted time is another person's glorious secret, a productivity-addicted hustle devotee might purge every last trash minute from his day, but we can try to see the gleaming treasure, the glittering potential in the waste, in those unproductive moments moments. Savor the trash minutes. It's time to waste time. I feel like that's got to be the title of a book someone like Austin Kleon has either written or is about to. 
And in fact, if he isn't writing it, maybe I will. Waste more time. New book coming soon from Jackson Bird. With many thanks to fellow time dumpster diving trash princess philosophers like Madeline Dore, whose actually already written book is linked in the show notes. So not that those nature is healing memes ever had much credence to them to begin with, but one huge rebuttal against that idea that lockdown would be good for the environment was the astronomical uptick in single-use disposable hygiene products. Disinfectant wipes, paper towels, plastic bags, nitrile gloves, and of course, face masks. But one group of researchers out of Washington State University are doing their part to think outside the box and come up with an alternative solution to all that face mask waste, mixing the masks into concrete to make our roads stronger. As Mike so cleverly put it, quote, There are masks on the ground everywhere you go. Oddly, we'd be much better off if those masks were in the ground, end quote. And quoting from Science Daily, Production of cement is a carbon-intensive process, responsible for as much as 8% of carbon emissions worldwide. Microfibers are already sometimes added to cement concrete to strengthen it, but they're expensive. The microfiber-reinforced concrete can potentially reduce the amount of cement needed for a project or make the concrete last longer, saving carbon emissions as well as money for builders and owners. Made of a polypropylene or polyester fabric where it contacts the skin and an ultra-fine polypropylene fiber for the filtering layers, medical masks have fibers that can be useful for the concrete industry. End quote. Now, for this particular study, the results of which were recently published in the journal Material Letters, the team removed the metal and cotton loops from face masks, chopped up the masks themselves, mixed those in a solution of graphene oxide, and then mixed that into Portland cement, the most commonly used cement around the world. And quoting again, the graphene oxide provides ultra-thin layers that strongly adhere to the fiber surfaces. Such mask microfibers absorb or dissipate the fracture energy that would contribute to tiny cracks in the concrete. Without the fibers, these microscopic cracks could eventually lead to wider cracks and the material's failure. End quote. And the team found that their mask mixture was 47% stronger than a non-mask regular cement mixture after a month of curing. In subsequent studies, they hope to further test the durability of the concrete, especially from frost and de-icing chemical damage. While face masks are ripe for this utilization right now, with Mike noting an 80-fold increase in littered masks since pre-pandemic and environmental groups collecting over 100,000 masks from beaches last year, they aren't the only material that can or has been used for bolstering concrete. Many other polymer materials, like clothing, could be collected and used for the effort as well. I mean, we have got so much textile waste in the world, so these kinds of creative solutions are crucial. And I mean, anything that might prevent potholes from forming is great in my book. Luckily, lead author and Washington State University professor Xian Mingxu agrees. He told the WSU Insider, quote, I'm always looking out for waste streams, and my first reaction is, how do I turn that into something usable in concrete or asphalt? End quote.
Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness hits theaters this week, but one place it won't be showing is China, or at least it has not yet been approved. China often requires certain alterations to films in order for them to align with their national censors. For example, exactly six seconds of dialogue was removed from the Chinese version of the latest Fantastic Beasts movie, Secrets of Dumbledore, so that Chinese audiences would not get the confirmation that Dumbledore and Grindelwald, two male characters, were indeed in love. And at least according to Deadline, the only edit that the Doctor Strange sequel would require in order to appease the Chinese censor boards is a shot of the anti-CCP publication, The Epoch Times. Although that actually might just be a rumor from some internet sleuths, but as of now, the Multiverse of Madness is not yet approved for a Chinese release. And I guess I just maybe haven't been paying attention, but I didn't realize that there hasn't been a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie release in China since Avengers Endgame came out in spring of 2019. Eternals and Shang-Chi were rumored to have been blacklisted due to director Chloe Zhao and actor Simu Liu making critical comments about the Chinese government. Black Widow wasn't released, perhaps similarly due to its in-universe criticism of communism. And then Spider-Man No Way Home didn't make it past the censor boards because, according to Consequence of Film, they wanted the Statue of Liberty cut out of the movie, or at least downplayed. And, uh, well, a pretty significant and long scene takes place at the Statue of Liberty, so that was kind of an impossible ask. And while it definitely sucks for Marvel fans who live in China, Consequence of Film doesn't seem to think that the mouse's pocketbook is hurting too badly from repeatedly losing the Chinese market. With the censor board there becoming ever more strict, it's apparently not even as much of a boon to get those box office numbers as it used to be. Case in point, even without a Chinese release, Spider-Man No Way Home grossed $1.9 billion and counting worldwide. Not too shabby. But I will say that if some studios are basically giving up on China or acknowledging that they can be successful even without its box office market, then I'm also going to need them to retire their excuse that they can't include better LGBTQ plus representation due to the censors in other nations. I mean, not like anything the Fantastic Beasts franchise does is a good example to follow, but they did, I guess, show that for milk toast representation, you can have your cake and eat it too by simply cutting out the explicit dialogue. Although, I would kind of prefer LGBTQ plus storylines that are crucial enough to the plot and character arcs that they can't just be cut out with six seconds of dialogue. So I guess until then, I am just going to keep watching Our Flag Means Death on repeats. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.